Hey, it's Jackie on the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, and today we're in part two of a three-part series on abortion. In the previous episode, I talked about the concept of who owns my body, and I framed that in a global perspective over bodily agency. Today, I am speaking with Mako Nakasuwa um, about his book, Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States. In this particular episode, we're going to be focusing on what did our church mothers and fathers say, and what has been the historical tradition about abortion? What does the Bible say, and how has it been interpreted throughout time. And then we're going to look at science and how the early Christians actually relied on the science of the fetus to decide when is a fetus a person, personhood. And then we'll look at some science as of today. That's where we're going this morning. And I am so glad that you are here to have this conversation with me. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Okay, so welcome, Mako. I would love for Mako, right? Mako is how you pronounce it. Mako. Yeah. You know how I can remember it? Um, My children always call me Ma, Ma, and I thought, just remember Mako. Um, Welcome. I would love for you to uh, tell our audience a little bit about you and your work in this world so they can get to know you a little bit before we dig into this issue. Sure. Well, I'm a transplanted Californian. I totally miss the Pacific Ocean, but I live in Boston, and I moved here 22 years ago to marry my wife. Uh, we, we've been married since 99, and uh, we, live, we, we have two biological kids and a foster, foster daughter. Uh, we have lived in Christian intentional community um, since 2000, and we do a lot of uh, well, uh, practical, we try to be pra- make a practical difference in housing justice and other things. But um, as far as my full-time job, I'm the director and founder of the Agnosticist Center for Christian Education and Ministry. It, uh, is, it, we're a small team of folks that do curriculum development, teaching, and training around early Christian restorative justice and healing atonement. So... Uh, we are very in love with Irenaeus and Athanasius, if that means anything to you. And I'm happy to talk more about that. It does to me, that. but I'm not sure my audience has a clue. <laughs> <laughs> We're thrilled to see you referencing or, or uh, you know, using Marcella. Yes, as, right. We're talking early church fathers and mothers yes. is what we're talking about. The early church, what did they have to say? Which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you dig into historically, where have we been? How have things been interpreted? What has been the lens in which we, our church fathers saw things, including the issue of abortion? Um, and, and I suspect my listeners, um, much like me, have no idea. 
I mean, we just don't know our church history. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, those are a lot of big words. Healing atonement, that sounds like something I need to, like, come back another time and have another conversation about. I'm, I'm doing a lot of chasing right now around the concept of atonement and particularly what I've been taught about atonement. Um, but we won't get into that right now because abortion is a huge issue that could cover this whole hour. So, um, so let me just kind of preface a few things to tell you where I'm at with all of this. Uh, sure. In 2016, I watched my conservative evangelical community elect a president that, in my opinion, um, was a bit immoral and went against a lot of the morality that I had grown up um, and been trained in the evangelical church to say, ooh, that's not okay, right? But for the first time, the uh, the ends uh, was was the goal over the— over you know, what Trump would offer us, which is the Supreme Court decision over Roe versus Wade. And I didn't know how to process that. I, um, I never really wanted to talk about the issue of abortion. It's not a, an issue I want to die on. And as you know, there's certain hot topics in evangelicalism that if you touch them, uh, you blow up and your ministry is gone. And so this isn't something I've ever wanted to tackle. But there I was um, watching our politics be heavily motivated um, regardless of the person by this issue. And so I started reaching out to some of my colleagues and saying, hey, who's doing some really good thinking out there on this issue of abortion? Um, and, and then uh, somebody sent me your book, um, Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States. And I read it, the whole thing. It's, um, it's a book. I mean, it's an academic book. I think really I read it almost twice. I, I read it fully once and then had to reread it again to understand all the nuances of it. So, um, whoo, that's a work. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, thank you for reading it. <laughs> it's wonderful, but man, you leave no stone unturned. And, um, and I read it and I thought, I still don't know if I want to talk about this. Uh, and I just sat on it. And then I was in Israel on June 24th. I was standing in the line of the airport uh, security line and my phone started, you know, blowing up. And it was blowing up because the Supreme Court had made a decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. And I suddenly felt really unsettled, really unsettled um, as a woman in America. And I felt unsettled, and I've talked to my listeners about this in a previous podcast, because I do want to see abortion rates go down. I don't know too many people who don't. Um, However, I really feel uneasy about people in power dictating women's bodily agency um, because that has not gone well for women historically when that happens. And so I just felt completely uneasy. And even though I wanted to ignore your really heavy book, I thought, okay, here we go. We're going to have to pull this out. (laughs) We're going to have to discuss this subject because it really impacts women like me, you know. Um, But to do that... I wanted to talk to somebody who's done their research on how the early church, and you've even gone back even to Judaism, which is what the early church founded itself on. And how did we understand this concept? And, and to deal a little bit with the science and the reason I want to dig in with those two things, and we'll touch a little bit upon how it impacts policies today and why and how we've gotten here to be so politicized over this issue But I think it's really important for my audience who's evangelical, who probably has been taught it's very clear 
um, the Bible says uh, it's wrong. And then we get quoted Psalm 139, which is a lovely passage. You know, God knit me in my mother's womb, and I agree. Um, But it feels like we're also ignoring other passages, like Numbers 5, Deuteronomy 22, Exodus 21, which you will get into, the death of uh, Bathsheba's son, um, which seems to be attributed to God in 2 Samuel 12. Yep. And so... I'm a woman who has two seminary degrees, about to finish my third, and realize I've never chased this down historically, theologically, politically, economically, and I don't think it's as clear as I was told. So, I'm hoping that in the next hour, you can clarify everything for us. (laughs) (laughs) We'll try, Jackie. (laughs) Actually, I'm just hoping there's some wisdom for women like me and men who are listening and thinking, how do I think about this? Because I'm not okay with either side. So, why'd you write the book? I wrote the book because it it came out of um, a seminary paper that I wrote. I got a master's of theological studies from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox Study uh, Seminary. And um, I was aware that there was a difference between uh, various early church thinkers, but I didn't understand why. And I, I also knew that there was something that had to do with um, a difference in manuscripts. So there's the Hebrew and the Greek, the Hebrew Masoretic, and then the Greek Septuagint. And uh, I, I, I knew that the Western church had made abortion um, okay before the point of quickening. Quickening being that moment where mom feels the baby kick in the womb. And that was thought to be the, the point where God ensouls the fetus. And that was generally about halfway through the pregnancy. And so, um, I wanted to understand a lot more about, well, how did the Catholic church change its mind uh, about where they stood on that issue? And what does that mean? What does this all mean? Good heavens. Because, you know, at the time of the U S constitution, uh, the the Western Western Christians had followed the the Catholic understanding, which was that abortion was okay until the point of quickening, uh, and and that passed into the Anglican Church and the Puritans, and then at the the time of the the writer the writing of the Constitution, that was the understanding. And um, you know, beyond that, after that point, it was not considered okay. And we could talk about like, well. What does that mean? What's the severity of that? But the, the uh, in, in fact, for decades uh, more, uh, the states had that understanding. And then it started to diverge in between the northern states and the southern states, which is really interesting um, as to, well, why did the southern states hold on to quickening and the northern states became more anti-abortion? Um, so yeah, lots let's, of, let's lots hold of that things. thought because I want to swing back to that because I don't think most of our listeners know um, right. that that, I mean, it's, it's the opposite today, right? But it wasn't earlier. And we are going to talk about why was that? What happened? What triggered right. the change? But before we That's do that, right. let me, um, let me have you clarify something because I'm not sure everybody would understand Western um, church versus Eastern. So could you just real quick... <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, tell them tell them what you meant by that. The Western Church is uh, basically 
you know, after the Latin speaking, which eventually became the Rome, what we call the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Church is kind of divided into different uh, families. Mostly it's the Eastern Orthodox Church, but there's also the Syriac, uh, which spoke Greek. The, the Orthodox Church spoke Greek, uh, relied on the Septuagint um, version of the Old Testament, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then there's the Syriac speaking East. And uh, there, there are like seven Oriental Orthodox churches, and they have relied on a combination of Syriac and Greek. And there was, uh, so, so that's how I kind of parse it out. I, I hope that's simple enough. You could think of it as three families, three major families by language. And as you were starting to go down this road, they didn't agree about what to do exactly about the fetus, how to regard it, and, and what to do about abortion. Right. So we have East and West. We have a third, too. But let's just give our audience East and West. And what yep. you were basically saying is the United States Constitution and even our theology sits on the Western sect of thinking, philosophy, theology. Um, but, that, but there was also an Eastern thinking theology, right, that, that is part That's of— right the Christian church, the larger Christian church, then, and, and it may be that my audience doesn't recognize that, that we swim in the Western section, but there actually is also an Eastern section, and we have to look to all of it to make sense of, uh, of these kinds of issues, correct? Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, see, church history. Nobody knows their church history either. We don't preach that from the pulpit. I don't either. I mean, I'm a preacher, and I've never preached that, but... um. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it doesn't get taught. So, uh, so take us back a little bit to the early church, early church, even Judaism. Like you kind of, when mm -hmm. I read your book, you kind of start in Judaism, which I really appreciate. Um, and then you move us through, how did the early church wrestle with this? So kind of walk us through that. Sure. So, you know, the, um, in Judaism, Exodus 21 is by far and away the, the most important passage when it comes to understanding the moral weight of the fetus. And, the, uh, there, it, and, and you're right, there are other passages like Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1, which speak poetically about God knew me in my mother's womb, knit me together, and so on and so forth. But, that, but it's not enough. Um, Exodus 21 is important because it actually deals with a situation when a pregnant woman is struck and has a miscarriage. Now, uh, the, there are some tra Bible translations. I mean, immediately this is where it gets a little thorny, but um, because the NIV, the ESV would like to read that as not a miscarriage, but just a early but healthy delivery uh, and, and, and a little more consideration after that. But it's clear from the Hebrew text um, that no, this was a forced miscarriage, and I give like I have a document giving nine reasons for why that is. But you could tell it's a stock situation in the ancient Near East because the Code of Hammurabi from Babylon actually has the same situation: uh, a pregnant woman gets struck, and what do you do? Like, what's the fine for that? And does intention matter? Does uh, stage of the pregnancy matter? And th these kinds of questions come up for for Jewish law, and and so you know, they are wrestling with this and um, it, it's not the only issue um, or it's not the only way in which they wrestled with the issue because sometimes the fetus 
clearly is treated as part, just part of the mother's body. Um, like in Numbers 5 and Deuteronomy 22, if a woman uh, sinned and, and uh, a married woman sinned and w- was carrying the child of a, the fetus of a, another man who was not her husband, then apparently that, that, that fetus would die in the case of Numbers 5 right. or if, if, she was pre- if she was pregnant. Um, and if there was enough evidence to, to convict her of adultery and the other guy was actually convicted too, then the, the, the penalty was stoning. So they didn't wait to see, oh, is she pregnant? Maybe we should separate the fetus and the, the mother. No. So, you know, this starts a, um, the, the foundation for the majority view in, in Judaism. But in any case, in Exodus 21, the, the, you know, the people are fighting. A pregnant woman is, is struck. It's not clear whether she's a bystander or whether she's an active participant in the fight. It's, it seems to allow for the possibility that even the, that, that the strike was intentional because the Hebrew word nagaf is used, which in every instance, in all, 40, all the other 48 instances where it is used in the Old Testament, it means a lethal blow that was intended as a lethal blow. So, uh, I mean, these kinds of things are surprising to us because we don't usually read that. We, we might even read that, you know, other translations which try to obscure the issue, but the, uh, it, it's clear from the Greek Septuagint, the Aramaic um, documents that uh, the Jewish community used in addition to the Hebrew, because in the diaspora, um, when, when the Jews were scattered everywhere, uh, more often they spoke on the street, they spoke Greek or Aramaic. Yeah. Only, the, only the scholars, the rabbis, knew how to read and speak Hebrew, and so they needed to standardize on how to translate the scriptures into the Greek and Aramaic, and this is what we have. And it's very clear that it is a miscarriage situation. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's Judaism. Um, we could look at Philo of Alexandria if we wanted to say, okay, you know, he lived from about 20 BC to 50 AD, so roughly the time of Jesus and Paul. He comments on the Greek Septuagint translation with the understanding that it is a miscarriage. And so the, the understanding is um, in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew manuscripts, the fetus does not count as a full, fully human person. It's not assigned full personhood. Uh, and the way we can tell is because the phrase, a life for life, eye for eye, is only applied to the mother. It is not applied to the fetus. The, uh, th- that fits with the idea that it's breath and birth that constitute full human personhood. And that's seen in the, of course, the story of, God forming Adam and presumably Eve, and then breathing into them the breath of life, the nefesh. So at that point, they become fully human persons. And in the in the view of the Hebrew Hebrew Masoretic text of Exodus twenty one, that seems to be true of the fetus as well. So, so let me let the, me let me summarize that for our audience yep. real quick. Basically, the Hebrew text says, um, and I'm summarizing very simplistically that life starts at breath 
um, birth and breath. That is when they assessed personhood for the Hebrews, the Hebrew Bible, but not so in the Septuagint. Correct. They disagree. Yes. Remarkable. (laughs) So what was, what did the Septuagint conclude? What was their assessment of personhood, how they decided the personhood? Right. So, so first of all, can I uh, be a little nerdy and, and insist that the, Human life begins from conception, but human personhood is thought to begin at some later point. And, and that's important just because we could, in, in the debate as it happens today, I mean, I, I think it's clear, yes, of course, the fetus is a human life. It's human DNA. And, um, and at, at some point, we would probably say, yeah, that's a fully human person. Um, but the, and we could get into that, I'm sure. But the, the Hebrew Masoretic doesn't view it uh, that way. And, and then the Greek Septuagint uh, and, uh, views, and, and let me describe the Septuagint first. The, the, the name Septuagint comes from the word 70 and the traditional view that there were 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, who translated the Hebrew um, Bible into Greek Again, for common use. Right, because that's what and, everybody was uh, speaking. Yes. And um, this was the most, uh, I, I think, widely used version of the Old Testament. It, it's the most often quoted version of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it, it, it was, um, at least for centuries, approved by the Sanhedrin uh, for use in the synagogues. So throughout the Mediterranean world and the Greek-speaking world, the and that that is really important. So the Greek Septuagint says, uh, basically, uh, you is the fetus. If a pregnant woman is struck and a miscarriage is caused, you look at whether the fetus is imperfectly formed or perfectly formed, and by that the text means what stage of the pregnancy was it. So does the fetus look? human? Is it formed in that sense? And they even use the same Greek word um, icon, which is used for mm-hmm. image mm-hmm. in Genesis. Oh yeah, you're shaking Genesis your head. One. Yeah, there we go. Yes. Is it, is it fully imaged wow. in, in the image of God? And, uh, you know, we could talk about, oh, oh, this is probably why Irenaeus of Lyon in the second century b- believed that the way God appeared in the garden was he had a human form and that the human bodies of Adam and Eve were actually made in his image. Like they looked like his appearance. So, I mean, this is the, the Greek word that's used. So is the fetus unformed or imperfect, uh, you know, not fully formed or is it fully formed? And there's some delineation there, which makes sense. Uh, I mean, conceptually and, and then you go from there. So if it's not fully formed, then it's still a fine, as with the Hebrew Masoretic text, uh, because it's not life for life, eye for eye. However, if it is fully formed, then you do have life for life, eye for eye, as a consequence, meaning the fully formed fetus then is treated with full human personhood. Personhood, right. And this is significant because the argument today is on when is... Um, 
not not necessarily when life begins, although that is part of the argument, but it is also like when personhood, how are we going to legally identify their personhood? And what I hear you saying, which I think is really interesting and important for us to know, is that our church fathers and Jewish church fathers, if you will, I think there were yep. probably mothers in there too, but you know, we won't get into that. Um, sure. They, uh, they didn't agree. And, but but what, what it seems to me is that they didn't agree when to declare personhood. However, it seems to be that personhood wasn't declared upon conception. Right. That is absolutely certain. And I love the fact that we see right from the beginning that this is a nuanced and complex uh, question about when does life begin? When is personhood? How does the law respond to that? Um it, it, it lets me know right away that when we today say it's very clear cut, we're not being integritous to the actual issues uh, that are at play here. Um, okay, so one of the things you mentioned in your book is that because of these differing positions, um, different text, uh, versions of the text, and how people perceived them and how they interpreted them, they needed to like go to judges to discern, okay, you know, like, is this fetus formed or isn't it formed? You know, like they asked for other people to come in for counsel. And then they also, and I thought this was fascinating, they relied on science. Like, yes. Okay. So can you explain that? Sure. Well, the, in the Hebrew Masoretic text, uh, the, the process for um, Kind of dealing out the consequences of an assailant of a, a pregnant woman who ca- uh, who causes a miscarriage, and, and bear in mind, I mean, this is. Um, I, I think we have to bear in mind that the the we do have in scripture um, male motivations that would result that could have resulted in a man striking a pregnant woman. So, for instance, a jealous husband could have struck out of his jealousy. Uh, you know, his, his wife, if he thought that this fetus is not mine or a male relative who stood to right. lose inheritance, um, because, like in Genesis 38 or, or Ruth four, uh, situations like that. Um, uh, because it, Oh, it, you know, if my sister-in-law has a child, then, then more inheritance will be divided down that line. Right. right. And I, I don't want her to so I don't want less money. I don't want less inheritance. I don't, so I got to keep babies exactly. from being born. Is is the bottom line, right? Exactly. And so, yeah, in 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 the Hebrew text, there is a uh, a line that says, "Well, the husband uh, and goes before the judges, essentially, and and the judges of the community were the the local elders, and they included men and women uh, because we know Deborah." was a judge. She was a prophetess. She judged Israel. And so, uh, men and women, uh, who were the kind of local leaders were, were the ones to draw the limits of like, what, well, let, let's factor in all of the considerations here. Was this intentional? What stage of the pregnancy? How pregnant was she? How obvious was it? Was it in, was the man, uh, who assailed her acting in self-defense, which was, a possibility given Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 12. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, it was a, there was a fine that was imposed. Now, <clears throat> um, it, it just shows there was some, you know, 
acknowledgement there's that there's a lot of factors here. Now, in the early church, uh, because they realized, hmm, we don't, we're not, first of all, sure which manuscript to land on, um, because both are valid, it, the and both have their own integrity. Like we, we can't use critical studies to determine this. The um, uh, be, besides that, um, they even if you take the Greek Septuagint, which was more ethically demanding, right? A little more discerning about what stage was the fetus in, then you don't still know what does it mean to be formed exactly. And, and so the Greek East uh, looked to Galen and Hippocrates and the Latin West looked to Aristotle. Now Hippocrates was the doctor um, and Aristotle was the scientist. And um, they had different views about abortion and the fetus. And, and that contributed. <laughs> That's what we keep yeah. hearing. <laughs> it is amazing, the story. So now the, my Orthodox friends um, recognize, okay, Basil of Caesarea uh, was the fourth century father. He was actually a doctor. He was trained as a doctor. He took the Hippocratic Oath. And there, were, there was a, there was a, uh, a general commitment by Hippocrates to not perform abortions. So the, the Greek, uh, many of the Greek bishops and theologians agreed with that because they were actually also trained doctors and they, you know, they had, you know, seven graduate degrees Basil had. So it's just incredible people. And, uh, you know, that's, that's formidable, but it's interesting that they ignored the Septuagint. They, they actually used, Hippocrates' reasoning, and that is um, fascinating and troubling at the same time because Hippocrates and Galen and a lot of, I mean, a lot of people in the ancient world were pre-formationists, meaning they believed that the human being was already somehow formed in the father's sperm, just really, really small. And that the woman, the mother, only contributed the nourishment and the incubation. Can you imagine that? I mean, but it that was but the it most, makes us. It was how it was thought that 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 yes, it, absolutely. I mean, now we know yes. in science that's not true, right? She's not just the house, and he's not the one that forms the human being. But it right. made sense in a patriarchal society where man was elevated. Right, right, and where the only thing that you could observe was sperm. Right. So. That partly explains why it is that the early church took a very hard position against masturbation or because it was tantamount to murder, right? Any interruption of like getting the sperm to the womb was seen as, oh, we're not sure what's going on there. And, you know, or most forms of contraception would in, involve blocking the sperm from landing in the womb. So, uh, that's the problem of the pre-formationist view, uh, which is, and, and that did influence some things. So the Greek-speaking uh, Eastern, Eastern Christians generally went the way of Hippocrates because they trusted his medical authority. But, what, uh, the, but, but again, let me the, clarify, what you said is they trust his medical authority, but he wasn't basing it upon the text. That's right. Okay. That's he was right. basing it on his understanding of what he of what he thought he knew of science, not theology. Yes, 
Okay. So what about yep. the West? Where are they? Um, well, and, and bear in mind, I mean, they, they may have just been playing it safe and saying, well, uh, we, we don't know, maybe Hippocrates is correct and, and so on. But in any case, they took a practical stance against like, we just don't allow abortions. The West followed Aristotle because Aristotle and the Greek Septuagint had a nice point of convergence. Aristotle actually observed miscarriages. And for different reasons, he believed that the, the male fetus reached formation at about 40 days and the female reached it at 90 days. I don't know why. It, I'm sure it's male chauvinist. Um, but, but at least he was trying to observe miscarriages, right? And, and so the, the church basically came to the view that at 90 days, the fetus was fully formed. And that was the baseline for when God could ensoul or would ensoul a fetus. Um, and so that's what they believe. So the, the, and that fit with the Greek Septuagint, which asked you to discern, like, right. well, is the fetus formed or unformed? And that's what you meant by Aristotle observing the miscarriages. He was trying to distinguish at what point is it considered formed and at what point is it considered not formed. And they right. landed basically on 90 days. And at that point, right. in general, what we see is the West, which is where Americans sit their theology and poli policies, <laughs> political bents, yep. right, on the West. And so right. then take us to... Um, Thank you for that, because I, I all of that was like brand new to me, and I'm sure it is to the listeners also that are out there, and it's helpful. Um, if not anything else, it tells me that my unsettledness and not knowing why I feel unsettled about all of these and that it doesn't feel that clear to me, that that has historical precedent, <laughs> and I am right on target. You know, if I'm confused or there's there's nuances and complexities, yes, there is, Um so, and it gives me permission to wrestle those down as the church has been doing since the inception of it, you know? Um, yep. So let's talk about one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is you talk a little bit about science today. That also intrigued me because I would say one of the things, and again, I'm ignorant on this issue of abortion in America, so I confess that, but it seems to me that the far left banks their whole argument on science and lack of personhood, right? But I, I, like, I liked some of the things you said in your book about science. And one in particular, you said, if we're going to determine when is personhood, right, this whole idea of formed versus unformed, et cetera, et cetera, that we should look at the end of life criteria, which I thought was like, duh, that's a beautiful way to go about this, right? Um, and uh, so, so help us understand uh, some of the science that you put in there about this end of life criteria, how the fetus develops um, so that we can kind of understand a little more wisely. When does a fetus become person? Yes. Well, the reason I try to think at the same time about end of life care and beginning of life care is because end of life care makes it a little more clear. I mean, I understand there's some questions there too, but you know, for example, if I would, if I lost my hand in an accident, um, there's no question that I would still be a, a fully human person legally, socially, 
that I would be regarded as having autonomy. But if I somehow lost my uh, nervous system uh, or brain waves and brain activity, and my family were, you know, or the hospitals kept me alive, kept my body alive, mm-hmm. what would I be? That really is unclear. And, and generally speaking, I think most people would say uh, he's a vegetable or, or, or that that's his body, but then we, he's not a person uh, anymore. And that's why personhood and life, like human personhood and human life, is a real distinction. And some people you know, try to downplay it or say that's a contrivance. It's not a contrivance. This makes a real difference because I, I want my family to, to know, like, when does their responsibility to, to my body end or, or change? Yep. So, you know, the, uh, and at a minimum, I think what end of life care makes us understand is that a healthy nervous system and the presence of brain waves um, constitutes per, or locates personhood. Uh, and, and so, I ask the question, what, what happens if we were to look at beginning of life care with the same lens? And what we would arrive at is, well, it appears that at 23 days, the brain and um, spinal cord are formed. And at 40 to 43 days, brain waves are detected in the fetus. So um, that answers a few questions, uh, practically speaking. There is a condition in the fetus that can develop. It's called, or two conditions, anencephaly, which is, I mean, this is heartbreaking, but it's a fetus that develops without a brain. And it's because of a certain lack of nutrients and and, um, primarily. And and it happens uh, especially among impoverished women. But the, um, it does happen. And, you know, I think the question comes up, well, then is that fetus a fully human person? Because it will never live. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it may be uh, possible to hook a fetus like that up to life support to keep its organs alive. But even so, what are we doing right. in that case? Right. Uh, or there's another condition called acrania, which is a, a fetus without a skull. So, uh, if a fetus like that were to be born uh, through natural childbirth vaginally, it would die because there's nothing protecting the brain. And, and you know, even if we were to perform a C-section to get that fetus out, what would it be? I mean, what would its chances be? Um, I, I think the, as morbid as these cases are, it presses us to have some clarity, which is, well, um, viability has some minimum criteria, and there the, there are still questions about how to locate it in the body of the fetus. And, you know, if a fetus somehow is missing one of ten fingers, there's no question. Well, okay, it's a human person. Um, if it's missing a brain or it, it has such a damaged nervous system that it, it just, it's just not going to be viable or it, it wouldn't be recognizably human. Well, what is that and what is our responsibility? What it, especially, uh, what, it, what is the parent's responsibility to that fetus? And, and I think 
um, coordinating end of life care and beginning of life care clarifies um, at least a couple things. Yeah, I thought that was which is very very. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, which is just that we we need to locate it a, a little further in the formation of the fetus. Yeah, I, I, that was a very helpful distinction for me. Um, you know, there there's a push right now from the far right. Um, I hate all those terms. What is far left? What is far right? You know, people yep. will say to me, oh, you're so liberal. I'm like, yeah, for Austin. I mean, for Texas, what is that? Right? Like, put me in California. Right. I look really conservative. I mean, it's just stupid terms. Right. But anyway, point being, you get what I'm just trying to make it simple. Far right, you know, that personhood begins at conception. This is the push right now. Um, right. And something that you said in your book was like, I don't, I'm still processing, still processing. And it's the idea of uh, the number of fertilized eggs that don't implant. So if we're going to make the argument that personhood starts at conception, right? Yep. Um, uh, then what do we do with this stat that you put in your book, which I'll let you share with the audience because I want them to be just yep. as mind blown as I am over it. <laughs> right. 50 to 70% of all fertilized eggs do not implant in the, the mother's uterus. And the, we know that through IVF studies, intra, in vitro fertilization studies, which might have, a, might have some bias towards non-implantation for reasons that we don't fully understand, perhaps. But even so, uh, if the, the real rate of non-implantation is anywhere near that, then we would have to say God is the greatest abortionist of all time. Right. And I, I know there are some Christians who are prepared to say, yeah, and in eternity, we're just going to see a lot more people. Wow. Which makes, I, I, and, and oh, maybe this is the result of the fall, which I guess you could do that, but it's the, it, it's the idea that, wow, this really um, challenges our sense of God's character and God's commands, right? God's, act, God's activity and, and God's commands or theodicy, broadly speaking. Um, if, if God is, takes abortion so seriously, then why is he the greatest abortionist? For no reason at all, he's losing about half the people who are ever drawn into existence. Um, you know, if, if we were to look at any other field, right, right, and uh, and that's why you know, I, I and I forget off the top of my head when does implantation happen, but I think we would want to look for a point of ensoulment and a point for human personhood for the fetus that is after that time frame, And the 23 day marker and the 40 to 43 day marker is well outside that framework. So I, I think that's one of the things that is really problematic um, for people who believe that human personhood begins at conception or fertilization. Yeah. The, I mean, there's a bunch of other things like twinning and chimerism and cell potency, which, <clears throat> again, force us to look further out um, in time in the developmental stages of the fetus. So that probably takes us to when, when you hear these 
irrational statements, right, by someone, by people when they say, well, I'm okay with God being a murderer of 50%, you know, like, because there'll be lots of children in heaven. Um, That's just like a a non-thinking, emotionally emoting, probably politicized or... (laughs) you know, in their brain somewhere. It's it's not thinking through logically, and it's not actually helpful. Well, we're going to pause here because I think that's enough for us to have to think about and noodle on for a bit. Um, in the next episode, I'll be continuing this conversation with Mako about basically how the church has changed its mind and its position throughout history about the issue of abortion, and we're going to look at how it became politicized, and we're going to end with a conversation about how we can actually talk to one another about abortion without like blowing up on each other. So that's where we're going, and um, I'm going to post on my Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook page the website of Mako's website so that you can have more information and dig into it. It's also here for those of you listening on this particular podcast channel. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.